0: For cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith.
1: So, John T., I think we need to talk about church.
2: I I know I haven't (laughs) been in a long time. don't, Don't lay this guilt trip at my feet. I don't need it today.
1: Nobody's been in a long time. It's okay. Specifically, let's dig into the roles churches can play in the fight against climate change. Churches might just be an overlooked Southern institution in mobilizing people to think about and then act on this big problem.
2: It's a really interesting idea because the Pew Forum tells us the South is the most religious region in the country. We all kind of know that and that the vast majority of Southerners believe in God. We know that too. Nearly a half of adults in the South read Scripture at least once a week.
1: So that's a lower number than I was expecting, because 100% of the adults in the house I grew up in, indeed 100% of the adults I knew as a child read Scripture every day. I know that shocks you. <laughs>
2: While the data tells us that religion isn't the primary driver in how people think about the environment, we can glean, get it, some guidance about food and climate change in church.
1: Climate change can seem too big of an issue. It can seem too abstract. And in church, Southerners often wrestle with problems just like that.
2: To learn what's at stake, And believe us, we see a lot at stake despite the humor we're bringing to this introduction. Gravy went to church to learn how Christian leaders address these issues with their congregations. What pushes them to think and talk about the environment with their flocks?
1: And what connections do they make between the abstraction of climate change and the concrete need to feed a family in a rapidly changing South? I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 Gravy.
2: Production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South.
1: Reporter Irina Zhoroff starts us off in North Carolina.
3: Anna Shine is setting up for communion in the garden of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Boone, North Carolina. Flowers from the garden adorn the makeshift communion table.
4: So that makes me really happy.
3: <laughs> About a dozen parishioners stand in the raised garden beds, which step down in terraces to either side of Anna, a grassy aisle in between. So it looks almost like we've got pews
4: leading up to the altar.
3: Anna is a priest in the Episcopal Church, She's wearing a priest collar and a pair of overalls.
4: Uh, Because that's the practical thing to wear
3: in a garden. At St. Luke's, she primarily works in the garden and on social justice issues. Today, though, she's leading services. And she takes this as an opportunity to talk about something near and dear to her, environmental protection. She broaches the day's topic using a saint she admires.
4: In the background, the music we have playing right now is actually music that was composed by Hildegard von Bingen, which is the saint whose saint day is tomorrow. So we are celebrating her in today's service. So I wanted us to have a little taste of the music that she composed.
3: She begins by introducing the multifaceted saint.
4: Hildegard of Bingen was born in 1098 in the
3: lush Rhineland Valley. Hildegard wrote music, published treatises on natural science and philosophy, counseled kings and queens, and practiced medicine.
4: And herbs were a large part of the practice of medicine during that time. During her lifetime, medicine was practiced using the understanding of the four humors phlegm, blood, yellow bile, and black bile.
3: Each humor was also associated with one of the elements, earth, air, fire, and water.
4: And so the understanding of health was placed in a context of relationship with the elements of the world, focusing on the importance of balance
0: balance
3: within individual bodies, human or non-human, but also in the relationship between bodies and the elements of the world. In other words, a person had to be in balance internally, but also with his surroundings. So as we shift into our time of prayer, I'd like us to take a moment to look
4: around the garden and reflect upon the ideas of balance and equilibrium in this space.
3: The church is right in town, but trees and shrubs rise on all sides around the garden, making a fragile cocoon for Anna's words. Crows break the group's silent contemplation. Finally, Anna transitions to the prayers, which she's written herself for today's sermon. There's one for each element.
4: Let us pray for water.
3: We must pay attention to the balance of water in our bodies, she says, so we stay hydrated, and also the balance of water on the earth.
4: May the excess water from rains and hurricanes be absorbed and sent to the drought and fire-burdened areas of our neighbors.
3: Let us act, she prays, to restore equilibrium.
4: Lord, in your mercy. Let us pray for air. When air
3: is out of balance, we Anna grew up in is- Boone, in the Appalachian Mountains, attending this very church, where she learned something called creation care
4: and that is what it sounds like, the care of creation.
3: Creation being all that God created. The Episcopal Church formally adopted creation care as an institutional priority in 2018, though it's been a part of the denomination's reading of scripture for longer than that. Sitting at a church pavilion a couple of days earlier with rain pouring down, Anna explained that the call for creation care appears in the Bible's foundation, in Genesis when God is creating the world. And what's
4: fascinating about the story is that after each moment of creation, after each um, time something is created, God sees that it was good.
3: So first, God creates light. And God sees that the light is good. And God creates the land and the seas. And then God sees that it was good. And God creates plants and animals to populate the water and the air.
4: And God sees that it
3: was good. And then, she says, an interesting thing happens. God creates humanity.
4: And you would think, based on the story, that then and God sees that it's good. But no, that's not what happens. What happens is God places humanity in the position of power uh, with creation and then talks about food and says, OK, humanity, I have created these plants for you to use as food and I've created these plants for animals to use as food and and it talks about the relationship of creation between the animals who are human and the animals who are non-human and the plants and and the water and all of that.
3: In the story humanity is given power or dominion over the plants and creatures that are to sustain it. But Anna interprets that to mean that humans should steward and guard over all else on the earth, not to rule over it. Anna says only after that relationship is established does God finally see that it was good.
4: And actually that it was very good. So there's an emphasis on it. And so it's it's kind of ironic because the creation of humanity doesn't have the whole and God saw it was good. It waits until you've actually Come to learn about what the relationship is supposed to be.
3: This is an instructional and perhaps hopeful vision for creation care, one in which humanity is beneficent, nature productive, and food plentiful. But Honest as the Bible also provides examples of humans' failure to act right, leading to food insecurity and food injustice. She tells the story of Joseph, who's sold into slavery by his brothers. But Joseph has a knack for interpreting Pharaoh's dreams.
4: Which say, basically, that there's going to be famine in in the land.
3: Joseph tells Pharaoh to prepare for the famine while there's abundance by collecting a fifth of the food each person produces to stockpile. Impressed by his interpretation, Pharaoh invites Joseph to rule with him. When drought arrives, Joseph forces people to pay for the food they helped amass. Once they run out of money, he demands their remaining livestock. And when they no longer have livestock, they submit themselves in bondage to the pharaoh.
4: Joseph actually puts a lot of Egyptians into slavery because they are food insecure and cannot afford to buy food. And so... It's a terrible story, but I lift it up to show you that the Bible is very honest about the realities of the way we are when we are in places of power. Because up until the point Joseph became in power, his interpretation of the dream was much more a just scenario. And then once he was placed in a position of power, the power influenced him and changed the way in which he actually responded and practiced the interpretation of the dream.
3: The Bible doesn't talk about climate change per se, but Anna sees parallels between the seven years of drought and some of the weather extremes and instability we're experiencing today. So she says the Bible's chronicle of food insecurity is familiar, prescient. And she's not the only one to see it that way.
5: So my name is Alexander Clementson.
3: He identifies as an Afro-eco-theologian.
5: I look at the intersections of race, environment, theology, society, economy, uh, food access, sexuality, and and a lot more.
3: Alexander works with a Black church food security network.
5: The intersection for me in terms of faith and ecology really comes in um, having a, a Christian background and saying, okay, The first profession and one of the initial things that God has chosen to do was to garden, was to plant and was to grow.
3: He's talking about the Garden of Eden. Like if God saw value in the garden, I should too. But even as he finds these connections between faith and ecology easy to make, he sees something troubling too.
5: If this is the work of God, then why is it that there's such a disconnect within the Black community.
3: Black churches have long focused on social justice issues, but the environment hasn't always been a piece of that. That disconnect, Alexander says, is not happenstance.
5: Enslaved Africans were forced to work the land. So working the land or finding other resources is tied to enslavement.
3: So there's trauma associated with agricultural work. Also,
5: folks have been lynched and that in itself is a part of an ecological connection and I remember growing up at times being afraid of trees because of history and lessons that I had been taught of, of black folks hanging from trees that in of itself is an ecological crisis and so in order to even move into the space of environmental justice and environmental minded focus like that trauma has to be overcome And how are we to do that when there's still this issue around food?
3: The food issue is that Black communities are more likely to lack options for purchasing fresh produce, less likely to control what food does enter any particular neighborhood.
5: Black, brown, and and poor folks don't actually know the people who are growing their food. They don't have control over what comes into their spaces. And then what's purchased or what is available is usually at a substandard quality, particularly in black neighborhoods, than uh, a counterpart area that may only be a few miles away. And a lot of this will always go back to an understanding of chattel slavery.
3: So as he turns to scripture for guidance, he feels tenderness towards the natural world. He wants to protect it, enhance it, and live in harmony with it because it nourishes him spiritually and physically. And yet when he looks at his people's history in this country, he finds those links broken.
5: It's just all intertwined. Um, there's no way to, to think about ecology and the climate crisis without thinking about um, the history of Black folks in the United States in particular. Like, those things are, are so interwoven that it's, there is no separation for me.
3: And so the question he asks is,
5: What does our faith have to say about it?
2: For this episode, Arena aimed to entangle climate change and religious belief to understand how clergy now grapple with this big and existential issue.
1: In search of answers, we tapped practical advice and sought spiritual guidance. Theology, after all, begs action.
0: More about that after this quick break. Maker's Mark bourbon is aged to taste in Loretto, Kentucky. The Samuels family uses locally grown soft red winter wheat and sources water from a lake on the distillery's campus. Every Maker's Mark label is printed and die cut by hand on an antique press, and each bottle is hand dipped in their signature red wax. All the details matter when distilling quality bourbon. Since Maker's Mark sold its first case of bourbon to the Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington, they have perfected the craft of distilling American whiskey. For their dedication to making great bourbon and for their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way.
2: Arena Zoroff picks back up the story right about now.
3: What does one's faith have to say about a worldly problem like food and climate change? In looking for answers, Alexander Clementson brings up the parable of the sower. In it, Jesus tells of a farmer sowing seed.
5: The seeds are are all thrown in different areas.
3: Some of the seeds fall on rocky ground without much soil, where they germinate quickly but then die. Some land in thorns where the shoots are choked by weeds. Some fall on fertile soil.
5: And then the good soil allows them to be rich and to grow themselves.
3: Usually the allegory is a lesson about faith. Strong faith must have deep roots, like a plant sown in good soil. But Alexander combines that lesson with the idea that faith without works is dead.
5: Where are the seeds that I'm sowing of my faith? And then how am I acting upon this idea of growth? Am I using it to better my community?
3: Alexander has been a community organizer and activist for many years. Now as a field organizer for the Black Church Food Security Network, Alexander works to connect Black churches with Black farmers. The network started with Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in Baltimore, Maryland, which had a bit of land out front, just 1,500 square
5: feet. They took that plot and started growing food on it and turned it into these monthly farmers markets and their churches, and they invited black farmers in to come and sell their produce and do other things. We are here to show the example and to create the connecting points to say, this is what can be done and how it's working.
3: The idea is to heal the historic traumas, introduce fresh food to communities that may not have access to it, empower farmers, and reintroduce those connections between faith and environment and food that American history has severed in Black communities.
5: The church can continue to be a place where someone can come and they can receive, and not just blessings, not just prayer, but they can also receive a stronger sense of nutrition and they can be fed, not just spiritually, but physically.
3: One without the other is not enough, Alexander says. That's something Reverend Michael Malcolm, who's based in Birmingham, Alabama, preaches too. He used to pastor Rush Memorial Congregational United Church of Christ in Atlanta, Georgia. The church has a history of action and supported student activists during the civil rights movement by feeding them and giving them a place to gather. Michael says he was always interested in social justice work, but he embraced the environmental piece relatively recently. At a conference some years ago, he heard a pastor ask, how can I expect people to listen to me at the pulpit? when they have serious problems
6: to deal with out in the world. It was like my enlightened moment in that moment that this work has to go beyond just uh, parish ministry. But I've, I've got to say something in public spaces because those who sit in my congregations in parish ministry also have to experience life out in the public.
3: Lack of fresh food in their neighborhoods. Bad water and air quality. Lack of infrastructure to protect people from storms. He began by bringing environmental issues into his services. He'd meet congregants where they were, not with jargon or data, which he says are exclusionary and could turn people off, but with the problems individuals face.
6: If I'm talking to somebody that's uh, on the Gulf, uh, such as Mobile, or someone in, uh, in Mississippi, I can talk to them about hurricanes and they'll, they'll immediately connect. Throughout the Southeast, uh, I can talk about high energy bills and people will automatically connect. In certain communities, I can talk to them about food and people will automatically connect.
3: Michael says compared to churches in other parts of the US, churches in the South lag on environmental issues. They're behind on having the conversations, behind on solutions, behind on taking action. But in other ways, Southern churches have a lot of potential to make the most change.
6: Because people listen to their faith leaders in the South. Faith plays a big part in the South. And because of that, we have an opportunity to depoliticize conversations.
3: Slowly but surely, clergy are taking up that calling.
6: I'm seeing a lot of churches using their land to actually grow food on it to help feed the community. I'm seeing a lot of churches getting with food banks and starting to distribute food to their community. What I'm not seeing, however, is a lot of churches going to their legislators to change laws and to change policy so that they can ensure this continues to happen.
3: That piece is important, he says, because food distribution, food sovereignty, food security, all of these things are much bigger than any one church can fix. That immensity is amplified for a problem like climate change, which is global, and yet not evenly distributed. People of color and areas with less wealth are more likely to be affected by climate change.
6: When we look at food, climate change, and faith, we know that the Ones who do the least harm often suffer the most. And when I look at that from a faith lens, then it it calls the prophet within me that speaks truth and power to those systems and and declare that, one, it's wrong, but secondly, it's not God's will that people would suffer and and children would go to bed hungry. It's not God's will that communities... Uh, who do the least harm suffer the most. It's not God's will for our planet to be out of line with the purpose in which it was created for, which is to sustain us.
3: Michael recently left his post at Rush Memorial and is dedicating himself to policy work that links faith and climate. Back in Boone, Anna Shine wraps up her service and invites those in attendance to come up for communion She's prepared individual little cups of wine and bread to avoid potential COVID contamination. After everyone grabs their portions, they file back to their places in the vegetable beds and take off their masks.
4: The body of Christ, the bread of heaven, the blood of Christ,
3: the cup of salvation. Afterwards some people take produce from the picnic table altar and Anna dumps what wine is left back into the garden. The garden here has produced more than 500 pounds of produce this season. Most of that food goes to local organizations working to reduce hunger. About 20% of the county's residents are food insecure.
4: Everything ties back to discipleship, which to me is the way in which you live your faith in your daily life. To me, Christianity cannot be a Sunday-only event. Um, If if you claim to be Christian, then my hope is you claim to be Christian Monday through Saturday as well. And what does
3: that look like?" She's been pondering this question for a long time. One idea she has is for a place called Hildegarden, named after the Saint Hildegard. She imagines a multi-faith community engaged in agriculture and local activism. It would also be a place for climate refugees. Until she finds land for her vision, she'll continue her work at the church.
1: Irina Juroff produced and reported this episode. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music, Charlie Kyer helped make this story sound good. Managing
2: editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam, Mary Beth Laster, our longest serving employee serves as our publisher.
1: Visit us at southernfoodways.org to learn more about who we are and what we do. And while you're there, consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund SFA work and help SFA make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall.
2: And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.